Uh, Last week, we looked at the first question, which is, why do we exist? And we said, we exist because of God's transforming grace. It is his free, unmerited, undeserved grace that reconciles sinners to himself, to each other, and to creation. And it's his grace that transforms us so that we can be a loving gift for the Son and so that we can experience God's love. Well, this week, we're going to begin to answer another question, and that question is, how do we behave? This is going to be a three-part question. And, and how we behave is embodied in our core values. Core values are the values that exist inherently in a body or an organization. They are essential to that organization. They are vital. Um, they, they give the identity to the organization. And so after talking with many of you in the congregation and discussing the history of our church, uh, the first core value that our elders identified was gospel centrality. The idea that we focus on the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at tonight from Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All men are like grass and their glory is, the flower, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord doesn't. It stands forever. So let's listen to it. Uh, in the advantage... Patrick Lencioni tells a story of an airline company that was fanatical about their culture and their values. And one of the values that they identified that was important to them was humor. They were so serious about humor that they would not hire anyone that couldn't laugh at themselves or at the world around them. And they were unashamed of this value. They were willing to suffer for it and be persecuted for it. They were willing to even go against their customers if it upset them. And there was one time when it did. Uh, There was a a frequent flyer who was angry because one of the stewardess made a joke during the pre-flight safety check. And so she wrote a letter to the CEO and she told the CEO how mad she was. And she couldn't believe that a stewardess would make a joke at a time like that. And so when most CEOs get an email like this, they're probably going to do what I would do, which was apologize and say, we take safety very seriously. And we will discipline that fight stewardess. And we will make sure that she never makes a joke like that again. And we promise you, we promise you that there will not be jokes during the pre-flight check. But that is not what this CEO did. He wrote the lady an email that said three words. We will miss you. That's four. We'll miss you. That's three. We'll miss you. That's all the email said. No promises, no assurance, no rebukes, nothing. We'll miss you. Now, surely they take safety very, very seriously. All airlines do. But they also do not compromise on their core value of humor. They know that it is essential to their organization. They are unashamed and they are willing to be persecuted for it. So let me ask you, what are your core values? What are the things that are essential to you that you will not compromise and you're willing to be persecuted for? Is it uh, work? You're passionate about your work. Or is it family? You want to have a loving and caring family. Or is it your hobbies? 
you, you love to play and spend your money and your time on your hobbies? Is it sports? Is it seriousness? I'm not a funny guy. I like to be serious about things. So it's good for me to be around people that are funny, but I take seriousness very serious. If you want to know what your values are, you can look in two places, your time and your money. Those two areas will show you your values. Well, what are the values in the church? What are the things that we value? We look at our time and our money. And I tell you, I'm, I'm really excited that our money goes to ministries like Global Golf because Sarah's doing fantastic work. There was, a, there was a girl on the OSU golf team this year that professed faith in Christ and was baptized in her local church thanks to the ministry of Sarah. Yes, praise the Lord. And you guys participated in that because we support her. Well, the value of the church and the value of our church, the core value that lies at the heart of Christianity is the gospel. It is inherent, it is essential, and it is unchanging. We exist because of God's grace, and that grace is manifested in the gospel. And because the gospel is central to Christianity, it is the core value of our church. And so how do we behave? We focus on the gospel. We are unashamed of it, and we're willing to suffer for it. And by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to keep it the central focus of our church. So we're going to look at three questions tonight. What is the gospel? What does it do? And how do we receive it? What is the gospel? What does it do? And how do we receive it? Uh, young kids, if you want something to keep track of tonight, you can count the number of times I say gospel. I'm going to say it a lot. Okay, so see if you can keep track of it. The first thing we want to talk about is what is the gospel? Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is announcement about what has been done, not what we must do. Think about it this way. Uh, our family has been watching the Olympics a lot. You guys have probably been watching the Olympics as well. We'll watch it at night. And then the kids know that over the night, you know, that it's in Japan. So a lot of the competitions happen in the evening. So they know in the morning we can get up and we can go check the results. So every morning we get up, we go to the internet, and we look for the good news of the Olympics. And we're hoping that the Americans got another medal. We want good news. We want an announcement that victory has been achieved. What we don't want is good advice. We don't want to go to ESPN in the morning and there to be a headline that says you should watch less Olympics and you should go out and exercise more. That would be good advice, probably, maybe. But we don't want that. We want good news. And this word gospel in the Old Testament describes good news of what someone being rescued or delivered from peril. And you come to the New Testament and this word is associated with a proclamation, something that's being announced. So it's an announcement about the good news of God delivering people from their peril. Uh, theologian D.A. Carson says that the gospel is not a code of ethics, a set of wise sayings, or a systematic theology, although it's the ground for ethics, wisdom, and systematics. It is an announcement about the good news of being rescued from peril. Rescued from what? We're rescued from the sin and misery of this world. So ever since the fall, this world that we're in has been broken. And it has been under a curse. And sin has broken it. And that's, that 
uh, that sin and that curse has destroyed all of our horizontal relationships. It's destroyed our relationships with ourselves and with others. And so we feel shame and guilt and fear in all of our relationships. And it's destroyed our relationship with creation. So creation doesn't behave the way it's supposed to. That's the reason why we have death and sickness and aging. Aging. It's broken all these horizontal relationships. But the main problem is not our broken horizontal relationships. The main problem is our broken vertical relationships. Relationship. Sin has separated us from God. And so we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be rescued from our alienation to him. And we need to be brought into a right relationship with him. And so what the gospel does is it announces this good news that God has reconciled us to himself. J.I. Packer describes the gospel with three words. It's a very simple, good way to remember it. God saves sinners. That's the announcement. The gospel announces that God saves sinners. The God means that the triune God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, use their love, their wisdom, and their power to rescue us. The Father plans salvation, the Son achieves salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation. Saves means that God is the one who does the work, that God has done everything necessary for salvation. He calls, he plans, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. It is his work from beginning to end. Sinners means that God rescues us as he finds us guilty, condemned, broken, lost, rebellious, and powerless. The gospel is an announcement that God saves sinners like us. He reconciles us to him. Uh, I once heard a pastor describe it this way. He said that uh, during World War II, there were some Jews who were in a concentration camp. And the uh, Nazi soldier that was protecting them, that was guarding them, left. And when he left, he accidentally left his walkie-talkie. And so the Jewish prisoners grabbed the walkie-talkie and they took it with them. And they hid. And they began to listen to the messages over the walkie-talkie. And what they heard amazed them. They heard about this this day whenever the, the Allied forces had stormed the beaches of Normandy. And they defeated the German forces and they captured key victories all over the European coast. And they realized that even though conditions in the concentration camp haven't changed, that the war was over, that victory had been won. And they began to live in the concentration camps as if the victory were already won and the battle was already over. It's a great illustration of the gospel. Through the person and work of Jesus, God has already done everything necessary to win the battle. He is one. He is victorious. And in the gospel, we hear that announcement that God has saved us through Jesus. And as we believe it and apply it to our lives, it changes the way that we live. So what is the gospel? The gospel is an announcement that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. So why do we focus on it? We focus on the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul, the word that Paul uses here for salvation is a broad word that means complete deliverance. It means that, that we have been rescued from this state of peril and brought into a place of safety and security by God. 
It means that the gospel is the power of salvation for all of life. It's the power for our justification. Uh, justification is not a word that we use very often uh, in popular culture. Justification uh, is a means to make something right. So the word righteous is a noun that means to be right. Uh, the word justification or justify means to make right or to righteify, righteousify, as one of my professors said, right? So to justify something means to make it right. But we don't use that. What we talk about is being complete, being whole, being enough. You might even see stuff on social media that say you are enough, right? What they're talking about in that moment is being righteous. But what, what we do is inherently we know that we're not enough, even if we say we're enough. If we, set, if, we, if we were really enough, would we have to do a social media post saying that we're enough? Probably not. That's a tangent. But um, So what we do is we use the things of this world to try to make ourselves enough. So things like food and exercise, politics, even religion, sports, music. We use all these things to try to make ourselves right. And we create laws around these things to try to make ourselves right. What are we trying to do? We're trying to justify ourselves. And the problem with all these things is there are false gods and there are false ways of justifying ourselves and saving ourselves. And they, they create uh, laws that we can't keep and standards that we can't meet. And they constantly put us on a performance treadmill that we can't live up to. How do you try to justify yourself? How do you try to make yourself right? Well, a few years ago, there was a study at, at Penn University, and they were trying to figure out why they were having a rash of suicides on their campus. Uh, they had six suicides in about a 13-month, 14-month span. And what their research revealed was that their students were putting on what they called the pen face. And the pen face was this face that let everybody know that I'm fine, that I'm okay, that I've got everything together, I'm flawless, and it's easy. The researcher said, the pen face is the practice of acting happy and self-assured even when sad or stressed. And it comes from the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor. You had to have effortless perfection. And what they found was this face that they were wearing all the time was causing incredible mental health issues to their students on campus. It was destroying them. They looked fine on the, on the outside, but on the inside, they were dying. And it's easy to pick on people out there and say, oh yeah, those people out there, they've got those problems. They justify themselves, but I don't do that. I don't struggle with that. Well, let me ask you this, Christian. Do you have a Sunday face? You have a face that you put on when you walk in that sanctuary that lets everybody know, hey, I'm happy, I'm fine, everything's okay, I've got it all together. Do you have a, a spiritual resume that you're building through your, through your church activities? Do you have a holy hints that you like to drop to let everybody know just how well you're doing spiritually when all the time you're really dying inside? Non-Christians aren't the only people that try to justify themselves. We try to justify ourselves as well. And what the gospel does is it's an announcement that God saves sinners by justifying them, by making them right through the person and work of Jesus. 
all of our, all our, all these false gods, all these false laws that we use to try to justify ourselves are perverted forms of God's law. And Jesus kept God's law perfectly because we can't. And so by believing in Jesus, we're enough because Jesus is enough. We're complete because Jesus completes us. We're justified because Jesus justifies us. We're righteous because Jesus was righteous. And this gospel rescues us from the performance treadmill of trying to justify ourselves and all the sin and misery that comes from that. And it gives us the joy and peace of being justified based on Jesus. The gospel is the power for our justification. The gospel is also the power for our sanctification. So sanctification is the process of growing more and more like God, of growing in holiness. And in a culture, you know, in the secular culture, we use words like self-improvement or growth. We just want to change this or we want to transform ourselves. Uh, maybe you've heard, uh, seems like I heard this a lot recently. I want to become the best version of myself which it's not a bad thing. We all need to grow and change, right? Like it would be really sad. I'm almost 40. It'd be really sad if I was a 40-year-old man that acted like a 12-year-old still, right? So there's some change and some transformation is good. The problem is that our false gods of politics and religion and sports and food, all those things promise to change us, but they're all dependent on our power and our ability to execute them. And if they start with us and our knowledge and our power, then it's going to end with us. So let me ask you this. How, how are you doing with all your efforts to change yourself? How are you doing with your, with your effort to uh, fix your besetting sin? Um, Martin Luther was a Protestant reformer, and this passage was... was uh, instrumental in changing his life. He was a monk. He was a perfect monk. He did everything right. He prayed, he fasted, he taught, he read, he served, but he knew he was unholy and he felt like he wasn't close to God. And that way didn't work, so he tried another way. He tried the way of self-help. He tried charity, sobriety, chastity, poverty, obedience, fasting, vigils. He did it all. I'm exhausted just reading it. And it didn't work. And so then he tried confession and he would go confess his sins all the time, sometimes daily, even up to six hours he would spend in the confessional confessing his sins. He would confess every little trivial sin that he had to the point where one of the guys in the confessional said, man, come back when you actually had some real sins to confess. Wouldn't that be nice if Steve said that to us when we went and talked to him about our sins? I'll never say that to you guys. (laughs) Didn't work. He tried the mystical ladder. He tried surrendering himself and and, and giving himself up wholly and completely, but nothing would work because all of his religious effort was inhibited by his power and his knowledge. He was trying to sanctify himself on his own. In the gospel, we have an announcement that God saves sinners through his power and not theirs, that he changes sinners through his power and his knowledge and not theirs. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. And he rose from the grave. And the same spirit that that carried him through that, that 
elevated him, that resuscitated him, that rose him, is the spirit that is at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and in Philippians, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He says, work out your salvation in fear, with fear and trembling because God is at work within you. The transformation, the change that we want is found in the power of the gospel and it's accessed by faith in Jesus. By believing in him, God transforms us. Luther finally figured it out. Luther had his, his breakthrough. He called it his tower experience. For Luther, this may have his conver- been his conversion. He would probably say this is his conversion. But for us, I think this is a great, exp- a great example of how we can uh, believe the gospel and it can help us break through in our sanctification. This is what Luther says. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, but nothing stood in the way more than the phrase, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that though I was an impeccable monk, I stood every day before God feeling like a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Sometimes this monk feels like that too, by the way. Therefore, night and day, I pondered. And then I saw the statement, the righteous will live because of faith. And then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors and into paradise. When I discovered that the distinction that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. We focus on the gospel because that is the message. That message is the power of God to help sinners and sufferers like us break through. It is the message that saves us. It is the message that transforms us. And it is a gift. It's a gift that we receive by believing in Jesus. As we proclaim the gospel, God works by and with our message to save sinners from beginning to end. And we are unashamed of that message. We will continue to proclaim it week after week after week because that is the power of God for our salvation. And it's the power of God for any sinner and sufferer. All right, Paul says it's, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews were the religious people, the good people, the moral people, the traditional people. Paul is writing this letter about salvation to Christians to teach them about the gospel. That means that the gospel is for us. The gospel is for our discipleship. The gospel is to rescue us from trying to save ourselves from our own good works, by our own good works. But it's not just for us. The gospel is for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the unbelievers, uh, the rebels, the the, uh, irreligious people, the immoral people, the non-traditional people the people we look at and say that they're out there. The gospel's for them. God loves them so much. He gave his only son for him that God wants to save sinners. He wants to bring them into his family. The gospel is the power of God for evangelism and discipleship for all peoples in all times, in all places. So we're gonna keep going over the gospel every week. And so you might be thinking, okay, he's not gonna be, it's not a little simplistic Isn't that a little repetitive? No. The gospel is not a simple thing. It is clear enough that even a child can understand it, but it is so infinitely complex 
that it can confound the oldest saint. I got the privilege of preaching at Christ Press in Tulsa this morning, and uh, I got a warm-up. I got to warm-up on this this morning. But um, and afterwards, a lady came up, and she said, thank you so much. I'm 70 years old, and I still need to hear that message as much today as I did whenever I was five. It's like a, the gospel is like a diamond. The, the more we see, its, we see its beauty, the more we analyze it from different angles. So you might be thinking, okay, well, does that mean we're just going to ignore things like Christian education and spiritual disciplines and cultural issues and that kind of stuff? No, we're going to teach that as we go through the scriptures. So we're going we're to teach through books of the Bible or major themes in scriptures. And as we, as we come upon those things in the passage, then we'll address those. But we want to try to stay focused on the gospel because if you think about a tree, the gospel is like the trunk of the tree. We focus on the gospel, and the trunk is what brings the nutrients up to the top of the tree. And up at the top of the tree, you have fruit. And that fruit, the missions and evangelism is a fruit. And growth and grace is a fruit. And fellowship and service is a fruit. And a biblical world life view is a fruit. But you don't, you don't get fruit by just putting fruit on the tree. You get fruit through the trunk. So we're going to focus on the trunk to produce the fruit. Well, you might be thinking, won't it get repetitive? Yes, it's repetitive, but that's a good thing. We need it. Uh, Martin Luther taught seminary classes later in his life, and he had a student who came up to him in his, before class, and he said, or after class, and he said, uh, Dr. Luther, why do we always start every lesson going over the gospel? And Luther said, because you forget it from the last lesson until this lesson. We forget it. And so we go over the gospel again and again and again so that we can get it into our bones, so we can receive it every day, every week. So what is the gospel? God saves sinners. Why do we focus on it? It's the power of, our God, it's the power of God for our salvation. Lastly, how do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God comes from his faithfulness. All throughout Old Testament history, we saw that God was faithful every step of the way, and it culminated in the faithfulness of Jesus. And so we see that faithfulness and his faithfulness to give us his spirit and change us, and that brings out our faith. We put our trust in a faithful God. In the gospel, we see that God faithfully saves sinners, and that brings us to faith. So you have two things working here. We believe the gospel with our hearts and our minds. And then Paul said, the righteous shall live by faith. We live out that faith in action. Faith demands action. Faith demands an action step. So we believe with our heart and our mind, and then we live it out, and we do it with our bodies. We do it in our lives. And this idea of believing and doing, it keeps us from legalism on the one hand. See, legalism says, do this and you shall live. And so we create all these laws to avoid sin, and we're going to do this and we're going to live. But that's not the gospel. And license, on the other hand, does this. License says, doesn't matter how you live. You can live any way you want. And, and what we normally think to do is we think, well, I'm being a little bit licentious. What I need is some legalism in my life. Or I'm being a little legalistic. What I need is some license in my life. I just need to let go. 
And when the gospel says, no, 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 you don't need a little legalism and a little license, that's not the answer. The answer is the gospel. It's a whole nother way to live. It's to believe the gospel and to live each and every day out of that belief. What does it look like? Let me close with this. Um, Let me tell you what it looks like for me. I'm going to take off my Sunday face, take off my pastor hat, and just describe what it looked like for me to live by faith this week. Uh, I did not have a good week. Uh, You know, the Bible talks about a root of bitterness that builds up in your heart. Well, my roots started growing, and by Thursday night, it was a tree. And I was miserable. And everything I said was tainted with my bitterness. And I was taking my misery out on myself and on everybody in my family. I knew that I knew there was a problem. I knew that I needed to change, but I couldn't change myself. I can't change me. So I laid down in bed Thursday night. I know there's a problem. And I remember that verse we read for the call to worship that Charlie read, uh, Psalm 44, which says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And so I took about 10 deep breaths and I prayed that prayer. I said, Lord, I trust you. I got done with that and I was a little bit better, but I was still pretty much a mess. And I thought, all right, what am I going to do tomorrow? My sermon's not, it's my day off. Friday's my day off, but my sermon's not done. Well, I could wake up in the morning and work on my sermon and get that done. But then I thought, how good, how good is it going to be if I work on a sermon while I'm stuck in bitterness? And if I don't take half a day off, that's not going to be any good. That's not going to work. So I thought, well, okay, what I really need to do is I really need to go play some golf. If I just go play golf and I just have some fun, I take some time to myself, then that will make everything better. And then I remember that I've done that before. And it did not make anything better. In fact, it made it worse. Because here's what happens. That bitterness is not in my home. That bitterness is in my heart. So I just take it to the golf course with me. And then I feel bad because I'm not serving anybody else. I'm serving myself. And all it does is create more shame and more guilt. So what am I going to do? Then I remembered that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And so I thought, okay, probably the best thing for me to do would be to get up in the morning and just serve my family and do the best I can at serving my family. And so that's what I did. And I'll be honest with you, it did not start out well. It's not like I woke up and all of a sudden I was a saint. But like before breakfast, you know, between breakfast and lunch, I think I had to apologize to every person in my family at least once some of them twice. But through the process of the day of somewhere in between uh, mowing the lawn and making the kids lunch and taking the kids to the pool, that that act of, of serving, of putting other people in front of me, it caused me to break through. And that tree of bitterness was cut down. And I began to laugh a little bit. I began to smile a little bit. And I began to enjoy some time with my family. I begin to experience that blessedness that David talks about in Psalm 40, verse 4. Now, will that bitterness come back? You bet it'll come back. It's come back a dozen times since Thursday. And you know what I needed on Thursday and Friday? I needed the gospel. You know what I needed on Saturday? The gospel. You know what I need today? The gospel. That's what it looked like for me to live by faith. What does it look like for you to live by faith in this moment right now? 
to believe that God saves sinners like you and me, that he loves us. He wants us to believe him and trust him. That's what we're going to do. Week in and week out, day by day, moment by moment, year after year, we're going to focus on the gospel. We're going to let God save us one moment at a time, one day at a time until we get to glory. Let's pray that he would do it.